Hello and welcome to unofficial part of the Sports Business Podcast. I'm Richard Gillis. And at Sainsbury's, we had a mantra, which was to know our customers better than anyone else. And we recognized it was just such a competitive advantage for us as a business to know our customers absolutely intimately, to know what would drive them to return to us day in, day out, week in, week out, versus crossing over the road to go to a Tesco or a co-op. The world's biggest retailers are years ahead of sport when it comes to understanding their own customers. So we asked today's guests, what can sport learn from Sainsbury's, Tesco, Target and Amazon? We're joined by Finn Bradshaw and Claire Kelly. Finn is head of digital at the International Cricket Council, the game's global governing body. And Claire is general manager of Gemba Europe. Unofficial Partner is the leading podcast for the business of sport a mix of entertaining and thought-provoking conversations with a who's who of the global industry. To join our community of listeners, sign up to the weekly Unofficial Partner newsletter or follow us on Twitter at Unofficial Partner. So I was going to start just, first of all, thanks for both of you coming on. We do an intro beforehand, so don't worry about that. We'll just start talking but I just want you to just say what you do all day what your day job is so Finn if we start with you what's the job it's called head of digital that means something different in just about every organization here at the ICC it means my team my small team looks after all of the organization's technology both enterprise and fan facing which is probably the important part for today but that includes all the content that goes out on all our social media channels, all the social strategy, and into the exciting world of emerging technology, whether that's NFTs, whether that's OTT, whether that's some other acronym we're not aware of yet. Yeah, all of that falls under my remit, and I try and bring that all together to help the sport grow. And is it normally, is your job normally in one? Does it, you say it differs from governing body to governing body or yeah. organisation to organisation? Yeah, no, I mean, some places do. Other places will split out the sort of product side, the, the website from content, and quite often there's sort of an internal IT department that's quite separate. Yeah, it just sort of depends, I guess, sort of how the organisation views where digital sits. Is it, a, is it a growth vehicle? Is it primarily commercial assets? So, yeah, it, it can really vary, and I'd say... Even, even when I worked in previous organisations, it's moved around a bit. But here, one of the differentiators is I sit on the senior management team so we can really sort of harness the power of that and, and make sure you know, the power of all of our channels and all of our platforms and find opportunities right across the business to take advantage of that. It's quite an interesting signal, isn't it, in terms of quite a revealing thing, probably unintentionally in some cases, because quite often digital has changed its meaning to an extent, it's a sort of shape-shifting word, isn't it? It was emerging from like the marketing comms started to own it because it was about content. And then it became, it's more of a commercial question because it's about, could be selling tickets. or And, and now it's almost like a redundant word, but an important word because it's sort of in, in everything. Yeah, that's right. And so that's when you get that sort of argument about should it be a cross-functional team that's supporting everyone or should it be its own? And I think... When you're trying to really embed it through the organisation, it's important that you make that sort of statement at some point to really make sure that you're at that decision-making table where funding's being allocated or when strategic decisions are being made to advocate on behalf of... It's essentially on behalf of the fans most of the time. That's sort of how we tend to see our role 
in the organization. I would say one thing, you know, here that yeah, by having it as its own vertical, you you have the opportunity but also the the challenge of making sure that your decisions work best for every department and what's made this role different to everyone else is the collegiality of all the departments that there isn't territorial fights over what we're doing it's always this genuine sort of discussion around what's going to be best for the sport what's going to be best for the fans and so then that makes what we're trying to do a lot easier Whereas definitely I've been in positions before where you get into that sort of essential commerce versus reach sort of discussions. Mm-hmm. Digital is particularly bad when it's the old designed by committee and you get a lot of camel-shaped websites to, to really mangle that metaphor about what's a camel, a committee desi- yeah, a horse designed by committee. So yeah, I think like here, our, our relatively small size as an organisation enables us to make decisions quite quickly in my space and execute on that. Because we don't have time to, to spend sort of navel gazing too long. So it's a collegiate thing, and sometimes that's by design, and sometimes it's accidental actually, or sometimes people leave it to a personality thing. Okay, we get on. I like that person who's running that department. We get on and fine. But if I don't, the whole thing starts to collapse because the incentive set is different and it's not been done initially. It hasn't designed it in the right way. So you can see how organisations accidentally get into a sort of conflict situation between comms and commercial. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and I think, I mean, our CEO, Jeff, would probably hate me mentioning him, but I think in the time he's been in that top role, if there's been one consistency around him, it's about relationships, whether it's internally across departments or whether it's with our members or whether other members of the sort of cricket ecosystem. His, his real mantra is on getting that right and putting that stuff at the sort of front of your thinking and and so that can't help but sort of flow down when you've got someone who sort of really prioritizes the way you do it well as of course we want to get great outcomes for the sport that's we're all here because we want to do world-class things but anyone who's been around anywhere for a while knows there's a whole lot of different ways to get there and I've worked in both very commercial organizations and also sports organizations which are always that hybrid of commercial and not-for-profit and I'd say often that the culture that gets you, that enables you to succeed in some commercial organisations might be effective for a short term in sports organisations, but they're rarely effective in the long run. Okay, Claire, same question to you. We'll start at the beginning. What do you do all day? So I'm the general manager of Gemba. Gemba is a strategy consultancy for the sport and entertainment industry. And really, we focus on insight-driven strategies that sit across business and operational strategies. So vision, mission, KPIs, who your target market, target audience is, through to commercial strategy, working with sponsors and broadcasters, through to customer strategy. And we also work in, in participation as well. And everything we do is grounded in proprietary research. We also do research on behalf of our, our clients and we have a data analytics function. So we like to bring those different skill sets and, and insights together in order to provide robust strategies to, to our partners. And in terms of clients that we work with in the sports side, it's really across the, the sporting ecosystem. So rights holders, governing bodies investors and brands so in terms of what I do all day at the moment it's a combination of getting out there in the sports industry here in Europe introducing Gemba's brand to clients that perhaps haven't come across us as yet 
showcasing what we do to them and then obviously overseeing project delivery and also in amongst all of that we have a real passion for thought for thought leadership so trying to create interesting thought pieces that are derived from our insight that can help the sport industry think a little bit differently about how it uses insight and how it uses data to drive better decisions and your background is retail is that right so i'm i'm and the reason i mentioned that because i think i'd like to have a conversation we don't often have in this context is what retailers know that sport can learn from and I, that's quite a nice premise i think a nice framing for this conversation because we'll get on to what the job of digital is or what the job of content is but i just want to just pause for a minute and just get into your cv so just tell us about that. So your what does that mean when you when I if I say right you you've got a retail background just flesh that out for me. Sure. So yeah, in my past life pre-sport, I spent a good chunk of years working there in the retail sector both as a strategy consultant for global retailers. So Woolworths in Australia, Target in the States, Waitrose Co-op here closer close to these shores. And then also I moved in-house to work at Sainsbury's and I actually sat in their insights department running the marketing insights team. And across those different roles and and the clients that we worked for, it was always about putting the customer at the heart of of decision making for for the retailers I was working with, helping them capture the right level of first party data, whether it be through data capture or whether it be through research and putting it that that centrally at the heart of not just marketing decisions, but commercial decisions, store format optimization decisions. We did some absolutely brilliant work on pricing strategy, private label strategy, ranging strategy. So if I give you an example from, from Target, which was one of my favorite projects that I worked on, <clears throat> excuse me, we worked with the Target team in Minneapolis to help them create a new store format for inner cities based pretty much purely around the opportunity that we saw with with new customers using the analytics and the research that we'd captured. So understanding the type of customer that would be in those inner city stores who would interact with a smaller format, the types of demographics of those customers, and therefore the types of range that they would be interested in, the layout in the store of where those products would sit, obviously the pricing strategy associated with those And it was absolutely fascinating because it was all based on the needs, the motivations, the attitudes and the behaviours of customers. And of course, there's the commercial layer that sits around that. So what what is the the revenue target for that store? What's the profit target? And how do you optimise that around that customer base? But it was driven primarily by, by customer insight. And there was so many fantastic examples in the retail industry where particularly my, my company Sainsbury's where I worked for, for a few years, where customers really drove every decision across the organization in terms of new product development, pricing, store layer optimization. And it would be the commercial director, the finance director, the COO, the CEO, who'd be talking about those customer segments as opposed to it just being something that would sit in the marketing department. And at Sainsbury's, we had a mantra, which was, to know our customers better than anyone else. And we recognized it was just such a competitive advantage for us as a business to know our customers absolutely intimately, to know what would drive them to return to us day in, day out, week in, week out, versus crossing over the road to go to a Tesco or a co-op. 
And we always used to have this this term, the kind of promiscuous shopper, where people wouldn't think twice in the time that I was at, at Sainsbury's uh, about crossing over the road to, to a different retailer to, to buy a loaf of bread if it was at a, a better rate. People shopped around according to, to price because people were becoming much more savvy and, and price sensitive. So you had to work so much harder to gain that loyalty from from retail customers. And I think that's been <clears throat> something so fascinating for me moving from the retail industry into the sport industry because here loyalty is almost ingrained as a behavior from the off. I've been a Man United fan for my sins all my life because my dad was a Man United fan and my grandma was a Man United fan. So that that loyalty is already there. It's a bit cruel, isn't it, handing it handing a Man United fandom down from generation to generation one, oh, one of the, winning all one those of the titles it must be terrible <laughs> i've got the so you, you framed it really nicely there's 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 a load of questions that come off that and i'm going to ask both of you these but in terms of just staying with sainsbury's for a moment they talk about the shopper we talk about fans and the cliches i use them all the time you hear them all the time of gen z the Gen Z fan, the future fan, or the a cricket fan, an Indian cricket fan. There's so many layers, but again, it's they feel like unformed stories rather than sort of evidence-based groups or useful demarcations. So, Claire, on how does Sainsbury's divide its fan? What what on what basis do they start to say right? Okay, well, let's put some more detail on this shopper. Yeah, great, great question. So I think one thing I would say as a starting point is they certainly don't segment by demographics or gender like perhaps we we do in, in the sports industry as a, as a starting point. So that that group Gen Z, which you talked about, is clearly not a homogenous group of fans who have similar needs, similar attitudes, similar motivations and behaviours. And so where Sainsbury's would start would be very much in that latter set of factors. So if I talk to you as an example about a big out-of-town shopper who uses a trolley instead of a basket, who tends to buy bog off, buy one, get one free deals, who's putting in their six-litre bottles of water or Coke because they want to to get that value there and then at the at the offer and the price that is is being presented to them. You can immediately create a picture in your mind, can't you? Of like, well, how did that customer get to that store? They they either took public transport and are coming home with 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 huge bags full, or they're in a car. They've got to. They're probably not going that often because they're thinking about those big shops at, at key points in time. And you think about how they would interact with a store if if they're moving around looking for those deals, where they would want deals to be presented to them perhaps at the end of, of aisles all in one place that they can understand what are the the key offers that they should be considering. None of the things I've talked about have defined that individual by gender mm. or, or demographic. It's it's really very much about their needs and, and how they're choosing to, to approach their shop in a store. At the other end of the spectrum, you'd have your savvy top-up style shopper who perhaps is going in multiple times a week to a local store on foot. They're going in with their with their small basket because they don't want wastage at home. They don't want lots of salad bags that will go off and they don't use. And so there's a perhaps a price sensitivity lens in there. But what we found at Sainsbury's is that you wouldn't want to start with the premise of it would just be low affluent customers that would be doing that. If I speak about my mother-in-law, if I may, 
she'd absolutely be sitting in that category, but I wouldn't necessarily describe her as as at, at the budget end of the, the shopper scale. There's, there's almost a psychology and excitement around being a, a savvy shopper. And so Sainsbury's would segment on, on needs and motivations, and then you'd layer around profiles around that when it moved into perhaps marketing and targeting strategy. But it was grounded very much in understanding the detailed behavior of that customer and also what the barriers were as well. I, I was at Sainsbury's through the real rise of the discounters, Adult in Lidl, and then obviously as online shopping became increasingly exciting for, for customers. And so understanding the barriers to shopping online with Sainsbury's or shopping in store versus shopping with an Aldi in Lidl were incredibly important as we started to, to segment and profile our customers. So to kind of come back to your original point on how we talk about, say, the Indian cricket fan here or fans of women's sport, just feel like we're we're underserving the sport industry at the moment in talking at that level. And we should be talking more at, at that needs, that motivations, that barriers level. Thinking about the Indian cricket fan, obviously, Finn, you'll be closer to this than I am. But, you know, there's multiple cricket formats that are played at an international level, a domestic level. There's a completely different engagement style with with a T20 competition than, than a test match. And so starting off at, at that level and understanding, are you a fan of cricket because it's entertaining? Are you a fan because you participated in it, because your family participated in it? What's your route into the sport is going to be a hell of a lot more meaningful and powerful to understand than just starting at a, their Gen Z and therefore they're, they're interacting with, with the sport through specific streaming channels or technology. Yeah, that's that's absolutely right. And I think sport, part of it is sport for so long has outsourced that direct customer relationship to other people. And when I started at Cricket Australia, we weren't thinking of it in a commercial way. We were just thinking of it as an engagement way where we'd reached this stage that media organisations in Australia due to mainly changes in the media landscape more generally, but also through some of their commercial tie-ups just weren't covering cricket anymore. They weren't covering the domestic round, but they, they weren't going on tours anymore. And we just started from that proposition of, as, as Cricket Australia, we feel like the sport is being hurt because these fans aren't being served. But then once you start sort of going, okay, well, we'll do some reports on domestic cricket, but then you actually want to get into really serving them better, there was no data there. We had some email addresses. There was there was just no insight into who people who who the fans were, what made them come to a match, what made them watch on TV, and belatedly now, like I th- I, for you know, as my hair changing hair colour the test, I've been around long enough to see it go from data was this thing that was coming and sort of sold to sports organisations as your magic beans, and probably didn't really deliver certainly didn't deliver geese laying golden eggs to now finally well not finally but in now you're you're hearing the requests come back from the commercial side of things looking for that data to to deliver actual outcomes and pretty much all sports organizations are starting to get those responses but i would say that the understanding of our fans is still primarily held with 
broadcasters or ticketing agents or other partners rather than with the organisations themselves. Claire mentioned there, which doesn't get mentioned very often in a sports context in this conversation, is price and price sensitivity. How does that play from... I'm trying to sort of second-guess your job, which you might as well just ask you what, this question rather than trying to second-guess it. But in terms of the, the, the different cricket fans and you've got a global remit, how does price play into this conversation? So there's probably two sort of really specific examples I can cite to that. One is our ET offering, ICC TV, which we launched, uh, let's say, two years ago. We, we haven't had much in the way of pre uh, top-tier ICC content on there because Star's our global partner there. But we've had, well, we've had a lot of second-tier, second-tier, like sort of qualification pathway content. But we've also had quite a lot of our content from our members. So the Australian Cricket Summer in territories where they haven't sold it, ICC TV is the home for that. And and so to your point, like it's our job to market that. And initially, we all the data we had was okay. We have a million fans across our social channels in Europe, and so. But then you've got the Australian summer of content. And you've also got Pakistan summer of content. We knew that it wouldn't be the same, but we thought it wouldn't be that different. But now, sort of two years into it. They're entirely different cohorts, and it makes sense once you sort of think through the likely sort of personal circumstances of those people. But, you know, quite frankly, where we can sell Australian content is, is many factors of what you can sell Pakistan content at. But then the viewership numbers, if you get that right, are fundamentally different in many factors. So you can get to the point where you get the same commercial outcome, but... You really have to be aware of that. And then even the way you pitch that and more sampling and more sort of things like that, you have to sort of really be conscious of your whole marketing strategy. So there's sort of that, which is just a sort of essentially what country people have come from and, and things like that. And then there was something like when we launched our NFT program, we <laughs> cricket fans who've got interest in crypto, like how do, how do we start with that? We hadn't asked our fans up until then, do you have an interest in crypto? So we did that deal and we're really excited about it. We believed in this as a really exciting development for, for cricket fans, but who do we can't just constantly go to the tens of millions of people in our database every week reminding them about them. We've got to start segmenting and how do you do that? And and that's been fascinating because then that like I think Sri Lanka is like our number three market for that. And we didn't expect that at all. And so we've had to learn so much along that way. And that's, that's very much fans right down the bottom of the funnel, people who are really engaged, prepared to spend pretty reasonable amounts of money on, on these assets. And, and so, but, you know, but then you're getting much more towards the Sainsbury model of where it's not a matter of who they support, it's you know, who they are in the rest of their lives and, and, and what, what are the, the, what's meaningful to them. And in a way, I mean, cricket... Again, you can imagine on this podcast, we talk a lot about a lot of sports come on and have an aspiration to develop new formats and products and to this to this question of differentiated marketplaces and either geographically or economically or whatever it is. Obviously, cricket is, is quite often referenced 2020. You've got these you now you've got the hundred and you've got these other leagues sprouting around the world. So you have got these different things and I'm a someone who grew up on test cricket and one day cricket 50 overs or 60 overs and I always think people don't get give enough credit for how innovative cricket has been over the longer 
period. And I got the first, when I was in a, in a previous job, the initial pitch for 2020 from the ECB. And uh, I couldn't have been more patronising if I tried. <laughs> I was like, really? Fast food. As though I know anything. But the format, the product question, I think is really quite interesting. A lot of sports struggle with that and have struggled with finding other things to take to that sort of market. I guess there's a question here, Claire, about the limitations. I can see the appeal of this, but what when you've moved from retail into sport more generally, what have you found in terms of the pain points of moving a governing body or a, a sport rights holder and adopting these things? Is it is it a tech problem? Is it money? Is it culture? What are the barriers to turning a governing body into a into a sort of version of or learning from retail in a in a in a good way i think it's the combination of the factors that you 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 mentioned and obviously every situation will be slightly different but i think there is a cultural piece here where i've been quite surprised at how transactional the relationships are between a rights holder and a broadcaster a rights holder and sponsors as opposed to in in retail i'm so used to that relationship between a retailer and an FMCG brand as being symbiotic. There was this recognition between both parties that they can both add huge amounts of value to each other and to the end customer experience by combining their knowledge about the customer and mining that insight together. And I think that's something culturally that I think we're we're still facing is, is, is a bit of a hurdle to to get over with people. I think historically, perhaps in sport, customer data strategy has been thought about in the world of marketing. So it's there to help us sell more tickets. And there's some great case studies that that absolutely is is the case. It's a a great outcome of, of using customer data. But for me, it's much broader than that. It's much more commercial than that. If you could go to a broadcaster as part of the rights deal and say, not some big, unwieldy 600 million fan number or a million cricket fans, Finn, perhaps in, in, in your language, or billion cricket fans. It's actually saying that we have a billion cricket fans, X proportion of those are Indian fans. But by the way, we can contact this proportion of that base. We have their email address. We know what they're interested in. And we also know their price sensitivity, their headroom to spend around broadcast. And we know, actually, if they even have a Sky Sports subscription, as an example, today or not. And so the quality of that data is incredibly valuable to a broadcaster. And if we can help a rights holder recognize that there's the power in that and there's power in negotiating with a broadcaster by having access to that data, then that's really something. There's a, sorry, there's a question that I've got, which is a sort of bit of a granular question, which is how I can see from Sainsbury's perspective that I give them my credit card. I give them, they know what I'm buying. They know when I'm buying it. They, there's, a, there's an intimacy there of the data that I'm giving them, which allows them to build a very, very accurate picture of who I am. I'm just wondering how a governing body does that because it's, it's that, the, so the data collection question. I always struggle in terms of how that applies. Unless I'm buying a load of stuff from the ICC, how does it work? Yeah, it's a good question. And it'd be interesting to see, Finn, like how you do approach this at ICC. I think it's very much about understanding the infrastructure that uh, a client has got in place. So if you've got an app, then obviously immediately there's, there's data capture available there in terms of 
when someone's signing in, logging in, they're providing you with a, a level of data. And we would come in there and make sure that the data being captured at that sign-in page is useful and relevant. <clears throat> we can then see activity through journeys on, a, on an app, for example, or on a website. What are people interested in? Where, which types of content are they engaging with? <clears throat> and which aren't they? And then if there are any offers or services that they're engaging with, that obviously factors into that, that broader profile. But a big part of what we do here at Gemba is actually we, we do research. And I think research is often really undervalued when it comes to understanding your, your fans. It's not just about first party data capture, although that's important. It's about speaking to customers, whether it be through Quant or Qual, in order to really diagnose those motivations and behaviors that I talked about. And so we tend to assess through obviously like a, a, a data audit style approach where a governing body rights holder is in their customer journey and data capture journey. And then there are routes into to collecting that, that information that, that's most relevant and realistic according to their customer base. Customer data collection is always a value exchange. Like people won't give you the, the data for nothing. Yeah, generally if they're purchasing something that tends to sort of be a better way through, but that's always going to be a smaller subset of your, your audience. Where we found the greatest success is where people are getting quite clear of what their value exchange is. So obviously watching live stream of a match. So recently we had Nepal playing the UAE. We didn't have the rights in Nepal or India or Pakistan or Bangladesh. But we had 100,000 people watch that live stream and a lot of them were new to us. They're Nepal fans. A third of them were in Australia, actually. And so that, the live stream, that's a really great sort of engagement but then if you want to vote we used to have polls and things like that but to make it more meaningful when we introduced player of the month a couple of years ago part of the voting for that comes from fans so fans are not they're not just voting for nothing they're voting for a tangible thing they're having their voice and so that's been really successful for us obviously anything with a prize attached to it so like fantasy competitions stuff like that but it needs to be quite overt because if people are, if you just ask people to sign in and they can't work out why they're doing that, you'll find that behaviour changes pretty quickly. Or if you just put, like I've seen a lot of organisations, they'll try and put what I would say is just news service information, announcement or something like that behind a login and I feel like you're just going out of a way, your way to annoy your fans because they could just go to Twitter and see it. So we sort of try and always create that balance like i think we could have been more aggressive in some places but we also want it to be a nice experience for fans so that to encourage that repeat behavior so it's always this balance but yeah i think it's sort of it's almost this quite overt we're collecting this but data you're getting this benefit back for allowing us to collect it and in terms of the the way in which the marketing industry would frame this conversation there's a funnel analogy obviously and you're looking at getting people at the top and then in at, at a retailer it's a much narrower easier objective to understand you want them to buy stuff at the bottom end i wonder what is action at the bottom for the icc what do you ultimately want them to do the number one thing we're focused at at the bottom of the funnel for us is how are we sort of creating this I'm going to sound a bit sort of buzzword here, but a flywheel of engagement. Like where are we sort of creating experiences for people that 
accelerate or intensify their engagement with a sport. And so the NFT program is a really good example of that. Like those NFTs, the what people are speaking those NFTs is not insignificant. So the the audience compared to other channels is not that big, but it's highly engaged. You go to the Discord community and it is a really active community. That yeah, a community has been really important in developing that product. But also, like I see that community talking about the Women's World Cup, and I would guess that a lot of those people, prior to being part of the Cryptos program, were not passionately following women's cricket. And so we feel like by our partner fan grazers, the ones who developed the product, but by but by enabling that product to be developed, that's increased the amount of time people spend with cricket, and we think that it's probably made their lives better. That they're enjoying being a cricket fan more than they were before so that's ultimately what we're looking for down the bottom and so by collecting that data we can then introduce them to these other experiences and products and that might be one of stars eight languages that they produce broadcasts in or it might be dream 11's fantasy product or it might be the nft program or it might be a mobile game it it's sort of any of those ones but we're really trying to use that data and insight to work out where those opportunities are because we want the market essentially to solve it for us because we're not a tech company producing products but how do we shape what we're asking the market or where do we think those opportunities are and then use that data to market to the to the users down there and re-engage them on behalf of our partners one of the things i think again which people in who don't know cricket can underappreciate. I mean, I, and the only reason I knew, I was a cricket fan and then I got a job working for the Irish Times. I was there, the Irish Times cricket correspondent. And that took me into the world of associate cricket, which is deep and broad and one that I hadn't really thought about very much. So they're beyond the sort of top end, the England, India, Australia, Pakistan conversations. And there are some very big countries with enormous populations and it felt like okay, this is okay. There's a this is a different world I'm entering here. How do you play in that world? Is there a difference in terms of the way you communicate to that group? Because again, people will go to India and the TV rights deals that get banded around, and the ICC World Cup deals, and all of that, and Sky in the UK, and that conversation around cricket. But just take me a, a level below that, because and I'm leading to an American cricket in America type question, but. Yeah. How are you managing that? Or what do you, what's your view on that? Well, first, from a content point of view, ICCTV has been so important for that because a lot of that content, well, if it was streamed before, it was sporadic and you'd find it on the odd Facebook page or the odd YouTube channel. And, and so through ICCTV, both people have been able to see their teams performing, like the Nepal example before, but also... At two of our top five territories on ICC TV are Japan and Germany, which you wouldn't think of as um, cricket hotbeds, but they're ones where there's not an engaged broadcaster promoting the sport, and we, we've taken that role. And so, for a cricket fan in Germany, ICC TV is a is not much cricket in the world you won't you'll miss through that. And so, so it's been really important for like, keeping those fans connected through this with the sport they love rather than finding something else to occupy their time and so the so we still operate here in those two ways of 
allowing more people and, and the friends and family and their communities to see the representatives of Uganda or Rwanda or whatever playing, but also making sure in those growth markets that cricket is accessible easily and, and, and viewable. And then once we have that data, we collect data on behalf of our members, but we can also market on behalf of our members. So America's obviously, we've, we've said, is strategically really important for us. We're optimistic about, or maybe our comms team would tell me off of being optimistic. We're working with the IOC to try and be part of the LA 2028 Games. There's a World Cup there next year. Major League Cricket was announced recently, and we we have a large fan base on uh, through our channels in that market, and we that's there to be used by the members to promote cricket in that country. And and that's so the we... American cricket fan. You know where I'm going. So is this a diaspora question? Ah, yeah. This is a... who are they? I guess is the is yeah. The so at the moment, well, the fans that we connect with on our channels are mainly diaspora. Yeah, they come to our channels to watch highlights of the Indian or the Bangladeshi team playing in ICC events. What we're doing right now is working through how do we use these events that are coming up in the US. Like The reason why you have a World Cup there is to try and reach people outside the diaspora. What are we going to do to create experiences that we can get them into that eco, into the funnel? And so that's we are thinking really clearly that that probably can't be the traditional cricket fantasy game because that's a fair jump. So what are, what are the other experiences, but probably more importantly, what are the platforms? Like, to pull one out of my head, a platform like Roblox clearly has a very different demographic than what we do. So how might we work with someone like that or whether it's them, Fortnite, whatever, where you're going to reach people you're not currently reaching and get you connect that with a massive event happening in the country to, to get people into the ecosystem I'm not saying we're going to do things like those platforms but that's sort of just illustrative of yeah. what you need to think through and we're really conscious we can't just sit in our little bubble how do we how do we reach people who you know we, because we think if people go to a icc event particularly a t20 event that'll get them in the cricket will be high standard mm. It's a pretty engaging sport. Like we, we're really confident of the product. Our challenge just is to get people in the gate, and then, and yeah, and then it's that sort of constant engagement beyond that. But I think whereas probably some other products, the there's maybe it's a slower burn. Like I remember taking an American journalist, Brian Curtis from the Ringer, to a day of the Ashes cricket at the MCG. It was the first day of cricket he'd ever been to. And it was the day that Alistair Cook batted through the day. so And, and it was Alistair Cook at his grinding best. It was going at about two runs and over. And he's like, well, it's very impressive that there's 80,000 people here, but I'm not quite sure why. Uh, so T20 is definitely the better first experience with cricket. To bring it back to, I suppose, the habits conversation, motivations we, we were talking about previously with fans, but what we're seeing in our data, which is quite exciting, is just the, the number of sports that fans are passionate about is increasing quite significantly over time. So in the UK, it was at four sports that fans would say they were passionate about back in 2018. Roll forward to 2022, and we're at seven sports. You see a similar trend in, in India, it's five to, to eight. And I think that's 
that's fascinating. It's obviously to do with with access and the fantastic ability now. If you're you're in India, to be able to still access NBA or NFL, etc. And there's there's lots to to grab hold of as a rights holder on that. But I think it's really important to work out what that Venn diagram is between cross consumption in sports. So you'll have some fans coming to cricket who've come at it because they love baseball, but that we completely different sections and personas of fans depending on their sporting background, their, their engagement with sport, or whether they're just purely seeing this as a form of entertainment that they haven't come across before. I think that's really interesting from a women's sport perspective is that you might have fanatics around the men's sport equivalent that have then migrated into women's sport. You might have fans of women's sport who are, are more casual, who perhaps have never actually been a fan of any sport before, but have been really excited by the athleticism the and the skill level of, of the women on display and find that potentially relatable if there are women and a woman or a girl supporting their idols. And the customer journey and the route into a sport and, and the drivers of that I think is so important when you're then thinking about how you do activate them. So Finn, to your point, and how, how do you activate a US fan around cricket there's going to be obviously multiple personas there and i think it's it's really a fantastic opportunity but it will require a bit of thinking to to get right and i think like that's where the diaspora is actually really helpful for us there because we know we'll get full stadiums so we're not worried about a new fan turning up to a half empty stadium where the atmosphere is no good like you know that Whereas ordinarily maybe if you're bringing an entirely you bring australian football into america your your worry would be that no one will turn up. So I think that really happens. The, the the women's cricket one's a really interesting one in that I remember when I was at Cricket Australia, our initial assumption was going was that women's cricket, which you know, Cricket Australia has been phenomenal at their support of it across all levels, whether it's about the high performance or the fan or whatever, the assumption was being that the main sort of target of our marketing was going to be women and that women were going to come. But... It actually turned out like it was men with daughters. You know, cricket fan, male cricket fans with daughters. Like they, they were the first ones to buy tickets. And then the good thing was because the crowd was different and more diverse, women were much more likely to come with their families because they felt it more inclusive, wasn't as exclusionary. There was less guys on stag do's and stuff like that. But, you know, like it was still the hardcore cricket fan, but he wanted his daughter to be a fan with him and then saw that opportunity right in front of them. And, yeah, and so, like, that's... One, it's, it, it feels really good to be able to make sure that daughter's got something to aspire to and do that, but still the... Probably the big change was that maybe that guy was going to that rather than going to an ODI with his mates. And so, like, it, it is understanding that sort of... That the whole... The greater person... But it was quite different to what we initially expected. So we had a conversation with uh, Moya Dodd, who was in the FIFA Executive Committee. So she's a, a, at the sharp end and, and of football and women's football. And, and one of the comments she made has sort of resonated with me, which is, is that FIFA showed very little confidence in the women's football product for years. And it's only relatively recently that they've started to package it with confidence. And the signal, it was clear to broadcasters and commercial partners is that it's a make weight we'll bung it in but the main thing was the the value of the men's game and then the question of separating out the women's game 
and I'm talking here about more about the commercial rights to it, is becoming a really interesting one because, again, it, it reveals something about the, the sort of instincts of the governing body, I think, at a very high level, in terms of whether they actually think it's a product that they, they can get behind and sell. But also, the point she made was that for years they've educated their commercial partners to undervalue women's football. Just wondering what your view on that, because it was a sort of, I think, yeah, I think she's right there. I think there's something there because the attribution of value is quite hard to discern unless you unbundle it. And and the point I made was that actually in the early days of 2020, something similar happened. Governing bodies weren't sure. So they they bundled 2020 into broadcast rights deals and they, they didn't really know the value of it until they started selling it. And so I suppose before the IPL. Yeah, and I mean, some of that's just a factor of time, right? Well, products need a bit of time to prove themselves. And yet, I mean, T20 has been the driver of growth over the last 20 years. And we're so, yeah, the cricket has benefited greatly from that product arrival. And I think we're going to see this next wave with women's cricket, like you would have seen the numbers around the women's Premier League in India. Mm. Like, that is a transformative time for women's cricket, for women's sport. Like, that. There's women, Ash Gardner amongst them, who just earned half a million dollars for a few weeks' work. There's very few sports that can compete with that. And you can imagine, for us as the ITC, that's hugely exciting. When a month before that, we had our first under-19 World Cup that included teams from Indonesia and from Rwanda. And you can imagine like those women from those countries going back and saying, not only was I just taken to this world event where I got to play against superstars of the game, but if I keep working, I might be able to earn that sort of money. And and so we we, we are really bullish on, on women's cricket. And as part of that, in our next right cycle, from a sponsorship point of view, we will have the opportunity for partners to be dedicated to either men's or women's events going forward. And we actually worked with Turnstile around doing that part of the Gemba group the and we we think there's particularly that sort of space there's a way to sort of talk to maybe some brands who want to tell a different story to what they will tell through the men's game the I think on broadcast we've we've sort of you know we've offered separate packages but I think all the ones we've done so far it's stayed the same and and you definitely like broadcasts are different I think it's a different decision making because if you're still trying to grow the sport, you do want all the marketing power that comes from your, your major broadcasters. Like, for all that we try and do on digital, your greatest shop window is still a really engaged broadcaster. The, 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 the viewership numbers they get, the way they know they can communicate to their audience and talking about that sort of... The lowest hanging fruit for women's cricket is men's cricket fans. And so the power that a star can bring to that conversation is really something. Claire, there's a, there's a sort of build on that or a jump from that, which is the marketing job of the next 10 years in sport, I think is a lot of it is to do with building fandoms around club brands. I see in, and I'm talking about women's football, women's cricket, women's rugby, and how this conversation about it started with data and knowing the fan, etc. But we've gone deep into into some really interesting questions but the job of using that intelligence and evidence to then create fans around 100 teams WIPL teams all of that that's the really hard yards I think that's really difficult to do what 
do you think the job will be? How do you marry those two things together? What, what do we need to know? Because if Finn's right, and I'm sure he is, about it's dads and daughters, it's a family thing, then I'm wondering actually, and it, again, it, this encompasses price, so just bear with me a minute, in that I very rarely see women's football, women's cricket, marketed as a more expensive or a premium product because they're worried about getting people into the grounds, they're giving tickets away cheaply. All those messages are about, okay, it's come along, we'll be pleased to have you type of messages. I'm waiting for a brand, a women's team brand, to come out and say, no, we're really valuable and you're going to have to pay and you're going to have to do this. Angel City is as close as I can get to. I'm thinking I I would pay a lot of money to go into that stadium. Do you see what I'm getting at? In terms of so where and how we do that, it's going to be quite challenging but I do think where there's an opportunity for some really smart marketing around a women's property that actually says no it's not a pale imitation of the blokes game it's in many ways better and you're going to reach more affluent people and the audiences are richer in every sense yeah absolutely we're actually doing a piece of research at the moment for a client to dig into some hypotheses around that in terms of the affluence of, of women's sport fans the moment the the entry hypothesis is actually that there is actually a skew to a, a high affluent fan supporting women's sport whose kids have perhaps left home children used to participate in a sport and they're continuing on their enthusiasm for for football or for cricket living sort of vicariously through through these new formats that are are being created or competitions being created in the, on the women's side so we're actually digging into that right now, Richard, because I, I think we agree. There's some statements out there that exist around what people think a women's sport fan to be, which frankly we think perhaps aren't true or, again, like underserve the, the industry in terms of how, how fans are approached here. And so what we want to do is is dig a lot deeper than that. What What is it about women's WSL football that, that excites and engages? Is it specific skill level of the players is it the the personal stories that are associated with those athletes how did they become to be professional what was their pathway to that so that then you could feel like you could emulate them as you were as you're a young girl watching the game is it actually I, I took my kids the other day to to see the Arsenal Chelsea Cup final it was absolutely brilliant experience and actually it was really exciting. There were goals to be had. It was very end-to-end. It felt very open. And actually, comparing to a boring 1-0 where Spurs have lost yet again, hey, Richard, on the men's side, yeah, actually, it's a very, very different experience going to a, to a live women's match or, or watching it on TV. And my, my kids, five and three, were able to, to celebrate goals and celebrate chances in a way that perhaps they, you're not always guaranteed to be able to do in some of... Uh... There's, also a, there's, a, there's also an absence of tribal anger in the, in the ground, yeah, which I, when you take, when I, if I take my kids or my daughter or whatever, I don't want to be cowering because some pisshead is trying to throw stuff or spit at me or the, the, all of that that comes with, the, with being a fan. So there, there's, that's a, that's upside. <laughs> yeah, and and so I just think it's coming back to your question, like what what is the next step in order to to make sure that that brands and 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 formats are more relevant? It, it's as simple as just digging that that level of detail deeper into to how a fan is engaging with a format today. What 
Is there aspiration for a match day experience, a broadcast experience? What were their expect? Where are their expectations? Who are they watching it with? What what feelings do they want to be taking out as at the end of that experience? And it's akin to if you're launching a new product on the market or a new business, you'd you'd start with understanding your competition, understanding how your potential customers engage with those competitive products, identifying what your target customer needs are, and then making sure you're, there's a kind of product market fit there. Now, obviously where, where formats and, and sports have already launched, you're, you're almost like retrofitting that product market fit, but it's incredibly important to, to recognize that we can't just assume we know what fans of women's sport want because of the, the history that, that that we've established around fans of men's sport. And, and I suppose coming back to that, that initial point around generalizations of Gen Z, I, I have a slight nervousness that Gen Z, Gen Z are classified as engaging with sport in a certain way. You read lots of articles around highlight clips and the need for attention economy resulting in shorter and shorter formats or shorter and shorter highlight packages. I'm not convinced that's always the case with that non-homogenous group that is Gen Z. And I think, again, just getting into those those levels deeper are where you can actually really make sure that you're delivering a relevant and personalized experience, which ultimately will lead to, to greater to revenue opportunities. Yeah. I mean, gaming is the, is the counterfactual, isn't it? This idea that they can't spend any time concentrating on test cricket when they're spending... You well, know, seven actually, hours a day. In front I was of, actually going to use that as a support to what Claire was saying because I've got a seven-year-old son, and the amount of time he can spend wandering around Zelda, searching for a warlock or whatever to tell him what potion to make, takes extraordinary concentration and sort of discipline. So, what he it, needs is seven hours of Alistair Cook, <laughs> just grinding out <laughs> um, leg glance. He gets excited. Let glance. <laughs> but but he also loves playing soccer and yeah you know, and watching soccer. But so like I, I think, but I think gaming, like sports, ignore gaming at enormous peril. I've watched him go from having very little interest in football to the World Cup sparked his interest, and then now he's. <laughs> Now I found myself the other day giving him the backstory of David Ginola because some, somehow David Ginola is on his FIFA mobile team, and yeah, he's already got much greater perspective of that sports. History. Sounds like you've 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 uh, you've not upgraded his uh, PlayStation for a while. No, this was the mobile one. This is, I don't know. Like I, I haven't played it. No, but we we don't have the we we still have FIFA twenty twenty two. So he was disappointed that Ronaldo still on wherever menu. I think it's really good observation there around look at avoid gaming at your your peril or avoid understanding it and bring it back to the kind of retail conversation. As I said, I was I was at Sainsbury's when Aldi and Lidl emerged. We started by describing them as the discounters and then very quickly it became clear that actually they were here to stay and both both retailers offered a slightly different prospect. But we had to very quickly recognise where the leaky bucket, as we described it, was in terms of existing customers and, and who was most likely to to make that migration a, across and therefore what was our strategy to try and prevent that. And I think, I'm not saying, not, not trying to be dramatic, but there's probably a, a moment in time where sport will start to have a leakier bucket, the, the fight for attention from the likes of, of gaming and entertainment, music, etc. And I think there is a demand for sophistication 
from fans and customers now. There's an expectation that there is a a return in terms of relevant content, personalization, return for their loyalty that perhaps historically with sport was was not necessarily desired or or demanded. So as a, as a Spurs fan, as you are, Richard, for, for the period of time that you have been, it's probably always felt a little bit one way. You're, you're putting your your love into into that team and you get the, the great experience of, of watching them play or the less great, depending on uh, which season you're in. Yeah, it's it's not all love, I assure you, but I it's a, it's a sort of combination of emotions that I project at Spurs. But I do but, think that there's a the you're getting to the central point is that sports teams, governing bodies generally have taken loyalty for granted, and and so they've assumed that connectivity in a way that Sainsbury's can't, and that's fundamentally culturally the problem that you're, we're talking about across all of this stuff is that I'm going to turn up whatever or I'm going to watch whatever you can treat me worse than a my mobile phone or my bank does which is pretty bad so it doesn't matter because I'll still turn up and that I think is quite difficult culturally to get beyond because it leads to such complacency yeah, I think that exactly that that as Claire was talking the thing I thought was if there's something we can take from gaming or anything else that's a threat to that attention economy, it's the things that are successful in that, how much they care about the quality of experience. And if you want to care about the quality of experience and deliver on that, you need to understand your audience and your market. You can't do it otherwise. And so if, you know, to, to neatly tie this all in a bow... If you're going to deliver what is being increasingly demanded of by anyone in the audience out there, you're going to really struggle to do it without having a deeper understanding of your market. You'll just be flying blind. Okay, I think that's a good place to to round us off. There's a whole load that we could get into in another podcast, but we'll, we'll call a halt there. So Claire and Finn, thanks very much for your time. Really enjoyed that. Thanks, Richard. Thanks, Thanks, that was really fun.